It is great to see each of you here this morning. Uh, man, it's just so exciting to be at the OCB again, worshiping with you for our second week in a row. Um, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Luke chapter 23. Uh, now, after Easter, we're going to jump back into book studies, as is our, our normal process for preaching at the Oaks, to preach uh, straight through a book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, but at this time, entering a new phase in the life of our church, I felt like it might serve you best, might serve our church family best, if we, we went back to just some of the core values of our church, if we begin to look at, all right, what is our mission as a church, which is ultimately the mission of Jesus, the mission of God for his people, and then what are some of the core values that undergird that mission? And uh, we've titled this sermon series, Growth Rings. Uh, why? Well, because we are the Oaks Church. We saw last week, Isaiah 61, we are Oaks of Righteousness. And how do you see growth in a tree? Well, well you know that whenever you cut down a tree, you can measure how long that tree has been in existence by counting the number of growth rings. Uh, me and my youngest son, Charlie, were at a playground on Friday, and there was a tree that was cut down, and it was a, it was a large oak tree, and we were, we were counting the rings together, and I said, buddy, this tree's been alive for about 67 years, because you could see each of those growth rings. Now, I, I don't know much about botany. I'm not a tree expert, but here's what I do know, that every aspect of a tree, the entire DNA of uh, the type of tree that is planted and what it, will be what it one day will become is contained in that seed whenever it is planted. And as that seed grows over time, as it matures, it grows deeper roots and it begins to sprout and then uh, forms into a trunk and, you know, sprawling branches. Now, as the tree grows, does it become something different? No. I mean, even if you, you see a tiny sprout of an oak tree and somebody says, what is that? You'd say, it's an oak tree. You say, well, it's only eight inches tall. Is that an oak tree? And you say the same thing about an oak tree that's 30 feet tall. But as it matures, it's not becoming something different. No, it is simply expanding the qualities that have already existed in its DNA all along. And that's how you measure the, the growth of a tree by observing those growth rings. Do you ever feel like in the Christian life, you're not sure if you're growing, and you're kind of like, hey, what, what metrics do I look at to know if I'm growing? How do I measure my, my growth in the faith? Well, we've said here, and we talked about it last week, that uh, each of us are experiencing gospel restoration. If you are a Christian, you have experienced gospel restoration and salvation. You are experiencing gospel restoration. That's called sanctification, and that takes place in you, in your heart, in your mind, in the way you think, what you desire. It also takes place through you, right? You serve others, you love others, you live on mission, you're sharing the gospel. So how do you quantify this restoration? Well, at the Oaks, we believe that our six values define areas of growth in the Christian life. Uh, you could say them in different ways, and, and I, I think that uh, they're, they're summary in their, in their form. But, but in the same way, each growth ring, right, consists here at the Oaks of being gospel-centered. You know, am I focused more on Christ than I was before? Is my identity in Christ our, our second value? Am I living on mission, no longer for my kingdom, but for His? Am, am I relating to other Christians as a church family, loving them, being loved by them? 
Am, am I becoming more generous with my time, treasures, and talents? Am I living a life that is marked by diversity in my relationships among other believers because I believe that God has created this family and we have great unity because the gospel is good news for all people? And so as you begin to look at those areas of your life, you, you begin to get a picture of the growth rings throughout your Christian walk to where you can say, you know what, uh, each, each year maybe I, I took some strides in this area. This is an area where I feel like God is really speaking to me. Everything I read in Scripture was kind of pointing in this direction. Uh, a discipler, a mentor came alongside me, and they were really strong in this area. And I began to grow in my understanding of the gospel, or, or I began to love serving other people as I uh, understood my spiritual gifts. That's the entire thought process behind this series, is, is for each of us to say, all right, as a church, what are our growth rings? right? Uh, as elders, these things help us make decisions. Uh, they help us assess the health of a church, right? Because uh, as, as we begin to think about uh, gospel centrality or, or mission, we don't simply want to say, hey, we've had a lot of baptisms this year, or there are a lot of people showing up for our gathering. Our church must be healthy. No, we want to say, hey, is, is each individual of our church saying, you know what? I'm, I'm called to a church family, and I want to embody that by being a part of a missional community group where I'm praying with other believers, where I'm studying the Bible with other believers, where I'm sharing a meal with other believers. And we say, man, we need to create more opportunities. We need to multiply more groups so more people can be a part of this and experience family. So, so as we think about these things, they affect us corporately as a church, as we observe the growth rings of the Oaks, but also you individually. Say, you know what? I'm, I'm spending more time in the Word and becoming more gospel-centered. Um, I want to take a, a, a step publicly like some of our brothers and sisters will do today that says my identity is in Christ and I want to display that through the public proclamation of my faith, which is baptism. And, and so as we work through this series, we're going to see several ways that um, each of us are growing in our faith and where we're looking to grow in our faith. And now with, with all of that being said, Today, we're going to specifically focus on gospel or, or the value of gospel centrality or focusing on the gospel story. Now, here, here's uh, an illusion that I will make as we get started. I want you to think about whenever you first learned to read. Uh, right now, we have a first grader, so we're working on reading all the time, and so it's been on my mind, right? Now, did you just pick up a book and start flipping pages and, and you're like, oh, that was a great story? No. Before you began to read chapters, you had to read paragraphs. And before you read paragraphs, you read sentences. And before you read sentences that contain words, you had to sound out each syllable. And those syllables all consisted of 26 letters, which is our alphabet. Now, isn't it amazing that it doesn't matter if you are a first grader simply sounding out the words in a phonics book that is a board book on a bookshelf, or if you are an astrophysicist that is studying a complex textbook that will teach you about how to guide rockets to space, you're using the same 26 letters. Isn't that interesting? That you can be an avid reader who just put down your 10th novel of this month, and yet the very same alphabet that was used to construct every sentence of every chapter that you read is the same thing that kindergartners are using 
as they learn to read. Now, what I want you to see is that in the same way that the alphabet is both essential, complex, and accessible, we have an alphabet in the Christian life of our own, and it is the gospel. I want you to see in our time together today that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's not just kind of like, okay, so in order to be a Christian, I need to believe these things about Jesus. Okay, he died for my sins. He was resurrected. I believe that. All right, now let's move on to the other stuff. Let's move on to the, to the deeper stuff. What I want you to see is that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the entire alphabet of Christianity. And in the same way that the alphabet is essential, it's accessible, it's comprehensive for all that you need to know when it comes to the English language, the gospel is comprehensive, accessible, and contains all that you need to know in the Christian life. So whether the gospel taking steps in the gospel, growing deeper in the gospel, you, you find yourself sounding out the, the simple doctrine of faith, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Or you are, to use our example, trying to get into the astrophysics, and you're, you're thinking about how the atonement works and the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, and you're trying to wrap your hands around that. Use the same alphabet. It is the same gospel truth. And so my question for you, the same question I've been asking myself this week is, how am I being restored by that gospel? Because I, I think, you know, and I don't know, but maybe, maybe you're like, ah, oh, this is on the gospel. Like, when, when are we going to talk about the end times, right? When are we going to discuss some stuff that, you know, I've, I've never heard before, but at the same time, how, how many areas in your life this week where you responded poorly or you did something that wasn't Christ-like? And then that's evidence that, you know what, I, this gospel hasn't sunk as deep into my bones as it probably should. Or an area where you know that obedience is not a matter of information. You already know what to do. It's a matter of application. You just need to do it, right? Are you so awestruck by the gospel that you had something else going on this week, but you just couldn't help the, the, gust, the gospel becoming a part of the conversation with your spouse or your friend or sharing it with a non-believing coworker because the Lord has been so good to you. And it's like the grace of God just spills out of your heart and through your lips. I think if we take a step back, we'd say, man, we, well, for many of us, we know the gospel, we're familiar with the gospel but we don't graduate from the gospel. We grow deeper in it. And that's my heart for you in this sermon. Uh, we're going to cover so much text today. And at the same time, I hope that uh, what, we, what we might lose in depth in some of what we'll study, we gain in breadth in seeing God's big picture in what he's done and who he is. So with all of that being the case, as I promised last week, I'm keeping main points simple without a projector, all right? And this is a phrase that many of you could complete before I get finished saying it, all right? So let's try that. That would be fun, a little crowd participation here at the Oaks. The gospel, four words, the gospel is, yes, let's go. The gospel is Jesus in my place. So if somebody asks you, hey, what is the gospel? You could summarize it in those four simple words, Jesus in my place. Now, remember what we started last week talking about uh, the gospel bringing restoration. 
Now, anytime someone tells you, this has been restored, right? So maybe you walk into an antique shop and, and someone says, hey, this dresser has been restored. Or you're at a car show and somebody says, hey, this car has been restored. Now, what is that telling you? Well, anything that is restored presupposes that it was corrupted, uh, something took place that denigrated the value of it. it, it went wrong, it was distorted in some way, and then at some point, it was brought back to at least its original beauty, design, or value, or was made even better through that process. So whenever we say that we experience restoration through the gospel, the presupposition is that something's gone wrong. Like, we need restoring. We need gospel restoration. And that's exactly what Scripture tells us, doesn't it? That we have sinned against a holy God, that sin is in our heart, that we're totally depraved, that we desire the wrong things. You see, it, instead of being gospel-centered, as we should be, instead of being focused on the gospel story, you know who's often at the center of our story? Ourselves. Right? We find ourselves being self-centered instead of gospel-centered or God-centered. God created us for a relationship with Him. He created us, as the Westminster Catechism says, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And yet, because centered in the, sin entered into the world and corrupted our hearts, we often desire the wrong things. We're not, we're not gospel-centered or God-centered. We are self-centered. We live like the story of our lives is all about us. We think that we are the main character in our narrative or the hero of our own fate. And yet, what does the gospel teach us? That God is central to it all, that we were created for His glory and not our own. Now, certainly, if you're a Christian and you can reflect back to your life before you placed your faith in Christ, you'd say, that was me. But can we be honest and admit that even as Christians, sometimes we live self-centered lives, almost as if we are functional atheists, letting our Bibles collect dust or uh, dealing with problems on our own instead of crying out to God in prayer, neglecting the, the goodness of a church body that God has given us or being able to confide and bear one another's burdens with fellow Christians. And so what is the antidote to being self-centered? If the problem is, as Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If Romans 6.23 indeed says that the wages of sin is death, then you and I, apart from Christ, are in a desperately hopeless and helpless state on our own. That means that apart from God's intervening, you and I will rebel against our Creator and move closer and closer to an eternity in hell. But the good news the gospel is that God intervenes. And as John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. That is the gospel message. You see, the word gospel literally means good news. There's a lot of good news in the world, isn't there? Some of you might have experienced it this week. But not all good news is the good news. So, so maybe some of you had a professor this week say, hey, I'm going to drop your two lowest quiz grades. And you said, praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean you're going to pass the class, does it? 
Maybe you, you've recently checked Zillow and you're a homeowner. I know, oh, downer. Um, you, you're a homeowner. You recently checked Zillow and you're like, hey, property values are going up. This, like, this is great. Like if I resell, you know. And then you get your property tax bill and you're like, oh, like this is not good news. Uh, maybe, maybe you got the dream job, right? Or you got into the residency you always wanted and you're like, yes, this is it. Like, look at my new title. And you're like, wait, this job is really demanding. And I feel like my supervisor or the responsibilities that I now have are much more than I, much more than I thought, right? So there's a lot of good news in the world. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. Without expiration date, without any fine print, the gospel of Jesus is good news. Now, whenever we hear the word good news or gospel, what do we think? We often think about it in a religious sense. But, but what might be helpful to you is to know that whenever Jesus uses the word gospel throughout the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was often used to either announce a military victory or that a king was born that would one day ascend the throne. And so people would go out throughout the city and they'd say, gospel, gospel, this is good news, right? Our nation won the battle. We're not going to be enslaved, right? Our king has had a son and, and he will continue to rule. And yet whenever Christ comes, he takes that word gospel and says, I have come to bring the good news. And what is the good news? That he has won the victory of all victories over sin, Satan, and death that he is not just some king that will rule for years or decades, but he is the king that will rule for all eternity. The king that Jimmy read about in Hebrews chapter one. And that's why this is the good news. Now today we're gonna consider the gospel in two ways, all right? I, I want to boil it down to just the essence of the gospel, right? In, in its irreducible form, what is the gospel? The gospel proper sometimes, as theologians call it. But then I also want us to look at the gospel narrative, right? So from the table of contents to the maps in your Bible, that message is the gospel. It's the reason that we had Sarah Schuster make illustrations throughout our uh, worship center here that starts at creation right here and goes all the way around the room, all the way to new creation over here because we are a people marked not just by the simplicity and accessibility of the gospel, but the entire narrative that we find ourselves in because of the glory of God. So with that being said, one final uh, word before we, before we get into Luke chapter 23. I want you, uh, just as much as you can, to try to hear this message afresh and to recognize that we don't outgrow the gospel. We grow deeper in the gospel as Christians. I'm going to give you some practical ways to do that before our time is up. We're going to look at a lot of solid truth before we do that and before you seek to apply it to your lives. Then we're going to get to celebrate a picture of the gospel through baptism. What I want you to see is that the gospel is not just kind of the front door entrance into Christianity. It is the entire house that you live the Christian life in. So make your home in the gospel. Now, with all of that being said, we're going to read Luke 23 beginning at verse 26. And if you're taking notes, I only have two points for you today, right? One, gospel essentials, life, death, and resurrection. So the gospel essentials, life, death, and resurrection. Let's look at verse 26, Luke chapter 23. And as they led him away, this being Jesus, 
They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33. And when they, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. What do we see here in these verses? That Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. That he he was so exhausted physically and emotionally at this point that he could not carry the weight of the cross himself. This, this, This is the essentials of the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And as Jesus takes upon the cross, as he goes, as verse 33 says, to the place of the skull where they would crucify him, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 5, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Uh, He is the one that experiences the curse of Deuteronomy 21, 23. He who hangs upon a tree is cursed, and he himself takes upon the curse of sin that first entered the world in the garden of Genesis 3. There the unblemished lamb hangs between two criminals, the creator hanging above the creation that he spoke into existence. Imagine this scene. And in verse 34, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he's not declaring them innocent. He is simply saying that those who are committing this crime against me cannot comprehend the full magnitude of what is taking place in this moment. And he, with the authority of God himself, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't this amazing, right? That as Christ is experiencing the suffering of those who need forgiveness, as he is accomplishing the work of forgiveness in this moment, he is praying that sinners would be saved. And he's mocked. Verse 35, there are those who call out, he saved others, let him save himself as he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And what marks Christ in this moment? Not self-preservation, but salvation for others. Do you hear the irony in this sentence? I mean, he saved others, can't he save himself? That's what he's doing. He is taking upon himself the weight of sin for the salvation of others. Uh, They are mocking him, And then there comes a voice next to him that begins to mock him as well. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly I say today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, as, as one thief begins to jeer at Jesus, hey, can you save yourself? Can you save us? Like, are you really who you said you are? Then the other thief says, look, this man has done nothing wrong. He is innocent, but you and I, we are guilty. Here, you, you see the, the truth from Romans 1 and 2 embodied, right? It says that our conscience will either excuse us or accuse us. It will either accuse us for the glory of God in a way that makes us guilty and aware of our sin in a way that leads us to repentance, recognizing, recognizing the kindness of God made known through Christ. We say, Lord, I'm accused. I need you. I need a Savior. Or it will excuse us like the first thief here. His conscience is seared. He's saying, Jesus, do you have anything for me? Can you, can you just get me out of here? No? Okay. Fine. And yet, the, the thief who responds in repentance speaks to Jesus saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's acknowledging that Jesus indeed will take his life up again, that Jesus is indeed the king, and that he has the power to welcome others into his presence. And the story on the thief of the, of the thief on the cross brings to light, I believe, two distortions of the gospel, two lies that I think often uh, crop up whenever we think about the gospel. The first is the lie of legalism. The second is the lie of license. Uh, or, you know, the, the lie of legalism says uh, that you have to work for salvation, right? So you have to, um, you know, attend church services. You have to check religious boxes. You have to meet a moral standard. And if you do all of those things, then God will accept you, welcome you into his kingdom. What has the thief done to be welcomed into God's presence? Did, did he attend a church service? No. Did he get baptized? Did he go on a mission trip? Did he give any money to the, no. He was saved completely upon the work of Christ and the basis of his grace, which, which conquers silences the lie of legalism, that you work to be saved. This is why I had Bennett read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of your works so that no one may boast. How do you, how do you experience the gospel? You place your faith in Christ and you receive the gift of his grace, fully trusting him. But, but the other lie is the, is the flip side of the coin. If Jesus is the way, as he says in John 14, 6, there are two ditches upon that way. One of them being legalism, I have to work to be right with God, and the other being antinomianism, right? Which is a fancy way to say it doesn't matter how I live because God is gracious. But scripture denies that as well. Jesus says a healthy tree bears good fruit. If you have truly been changed from the inside, it will show on the outside. You'll desire new things. You'll, you'll have... A, a new passion for living like Christ and spending time in his presence. Titus 2, 11 through 12 speaks of grace through the gospel in this way. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and so live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So let's summarize it in this way. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus, but if you have encountered Jesus, it will be displayed through your life. One of the things that we often say at the Oaks is that 
Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you are, but too much to let you stay there. And that embodies both of these truths, right? That Jesus loves you so much, He's going to meet you wherever you are in the midst of your sin, your addiction, your broken marriage, your inconsistency. Jesus will meet you there. But He loves you too much to say, I have purchased you and you're going to remain in this filth. No, He says, just like He did to the disciples, come and follow me and I'll make you something different than you were before. That's what Jesus does, loving us enough to meet us where we are and too much to simply let us stay there. And this love for us is displayed on the cross, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We're told here in verse 44 that it was the sixth hour. Their hours began counting at sunrise around six, so this is probably noon. And we see that the entire land is dark. It is a creation is saying the light of the world has been slain and darkness covered the land. Here we see that the temple curtain that created a separation between man and God was torn in two to communicate Christ the mediator has come and you now have access to God in a way that you formerly were not granted. Jesus cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last and many looked upon him with grief. Here we see the gospel in the death of Christ on our behalf. This is why whenever Paul is speaking of the gospel in, in its essentials to the church in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with, with the scriptures. In this moment, we see both the historical event of Christ's death and also the theological significance of Christ's death. Uh, there are two doctrinal terms that for some of you might be a reminder. For some of you, it might be introducing these to you for the very first time. But they're worth learning because they tell us of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Cross. The first is propitiation, and the second is imputation. Right? What took place on the cross? How are we declared holy and right before a living God based upon what Christ has done for us? You see it in propitiation and imputation. In, in propitiation, what takes place is Jesus takes on the wrath of God that you and I justly deserve for our sin. Because God is perfectly just, He can't just sweep our sin under the rug. He can't say, you know what, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, don't, just don't worry about that, right? Because that would ignore His justice, right? That's, that sin, that the wages of sin is death. But God is also loving and merciful. And so God the Father is motivated with compassion to provide a way for salvation in sending his own son. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus as a sinless substitute to take upon the weight of sin and the wrath of God in our place that he absorbs it in full. 
That's propitiation. Christ our substitute, Jesus in my place. It's why whenever John is writing 1 John, he says in chapter 4, verse 10, that God loved us by sending his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. But I also want you to see that in Christ's death, the doctrine of imputation explains how Jesus could suffer for us and we could be made righteous. If you have one of those verse memory cards in the seat back in front of you, I want you to grab that. I want you to memorize and meditate upon 2 Corinthians 5.21, the verse that encapsulates this doctrine in one of its clearest forms throughout all of Scripture, where we read, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, theologians call this the great exchange, that Jesus, in the entirety of his life on earth, obeyed every single command of God that you and I have failed. And what has God done in the great exchange? He has placed our sin upon the shoulders of Christ whenever he was on the cross. Colossians says, nailing our sin to the cross with Christ. Right, that's imputation. He's imputing it, accrediting my sin to a sinless Savior. And then what does he do? He accredits the righteousness, the perfect life of Christ, every moment that Jesus ever obeyed. He says, I made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, if you are in him, if you are hidden in Christ, you might become the righteousness of God. Well, that's amazing. That if you are in Christ, that whenever God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son and his perfect obedience propitiation and imputation. And that completely changes your whole life. It can, it does, does that not change the way that you relate to God? That, wait a second. So you're telling me that if I miss my quiet time tomorrow morning and I get behind on my Bible reading plan, God still loves me because his acceptance of me is based upon Christ and not my good works? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You know what that makes me want to do? I'm going to wake up 15 minutes earlier because I want to spend more time with a God like that who's so gracious. And I want to be more like a savior like that who loved me and died for me. That's what happens. Uh, perhaps an imperfect analogy explains how the doctrines of propitiation and imputation work. If you've been around the Oaks for a while, this is one that you could probably get up here and tell as well. Let's just say that, that you have an exam coming up this week. It's, it's a huge exam. It's a pass-fail exam for a class that you're taking. If you're not in college right now, just pretend like you're in college or you're a high school student and you've got this huge test coming up, okay? Now, instead of studying like you should have as a responsible student, uh, you just kind of, you know, hang out, watch Netflix, go spend time with your friends, whatever, and you're not really worried about this exam like you should be. Well, you show up to class the next day and the professor, the teacher puts this exam on your desk and you begin to read through the questions and you recognize, oh no. Like not only did I not study, I don't stand a chance. Like these words don't even sound familiar as I'm reading the questions, okay? So you're like, I don't know. You just start writing stuff and you just give up, right? You're, you're a puddle of shame in your seat. And so you're, you're like, I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna go put this on you know, the, the professor's desk. But there's, there's another student who man, they, you, they always answer the questions right whenever they're asked in the class. They're the first hand that goes up. You know that they've got a perfect score. They're getting the, the bonus questions right on the exam. And as soon as they sit down, they're just like ready to go. Like everything's right, okay? 
Now, at the same time that you stand up to go turn in your exam, you see that that student stands up as well. And as you're kind of slunking to the desk, uh, I don't even know if slunking is a word. I think there's like sulking and slinking, I don't know. But you're, you're sad, all right? And you're walking to the desk, and then this other student is walking at the same time, and they, they like tap you on the shoulder and show you their exam. And you know whose name's written at the top of it? Yours is. And then they, they take your paper out of, their hand, out of your hand, and they, they scratch through your name, and they write their own there. And they take both tests, your name written on their perfect exam, their name written on your terrible garbage mess of an exam, and they turn it on, in, into the professor's desk. And you know what's going to happen whenever the professor begins to grade those exams and assigns grades? The perfect score that you did not deserve at all and did absolutely no work for, that's going to get written next to your name in the grade book, and you're going to pass the class. And the, and the test that will result in a complete failure for whoever's name is at the top of it, there is another who wrote their name on the top of that exam. That is what Christ, in, in a picture, has done for us. He's saying, my perfect righteousness has been accredited to you. And your sinfulness was placed upon me on the cross. But I'm holy enough powerful enough, eternal enough to offer you eternal life and take upon the complete penalty of sin so that you can have life. And that is the gospel, Jesus in our place. But perhaps you're wondering, well, does Jesus really have that kind of authority? Like, it, like did he completely accomplish the work of atonement on the cross? Like every sin, were there a couple like straggling sins around somewhere that didn't get covered by the cross of Christ? Every sin was covered on the cross. And you know how we know that? Because Jesus rose again. If there was anything lacking in the work of his atonement, he would not have walked out of the tomb. But because Jesus lives, you and I can be certain that our sins are forgiven and that Christ's work is complete because now he sits upon the throne. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but meet me in chapter 24, verse 1. We saw that Jesus was buried. For the sake of time, we're not reading that. Uh, just so you know, in verse 55, everybody saw the tomb where Jesus was laid. They knew where to go on the first day of the week. Verse 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. What do we see here? That Christ was raised. They went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. The, the resurrection, I believe it was Tim Keller who said this, acts as a receipt for the, the work of Christ's payment 
in atonement, right? How, how do we know that we were fully purchased by the blood of Christ? Because Jesus was resurrected. And we know that he accomplished that work in his resurrection. Not only that, the empty tomb is evidence that Jesus is the first fruits of what we will one day be. As he experienced a glorified body after crucifixion, one day you and I will experience a glorified body that is free of sin and suffering in the presence of God. Not only that, Romans 8.11 tells us that if you're a Christian, the resurrection of Christ displays the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. Maybe tuck that verse away. Romans 8.11 says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, I mean, that's an amazing concept. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you which means because Jesus lives in you, you have the power of the resurrection coursing through your veins to say no to sin and yes to Christ, to follow in areas of obedience, to be the godly husband or wife that he's called you to be, to be the parent that loves your kids and disciples them, to be the coworker who's praying for others and sharing your faith. You are able to do that not because you are awesome, but because the very power of the resurrected Christ through the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's amazing. Praise God. So this is, this is the essentials of the gospel message, right? In its simplicity, if you, if you were to boil it down, what is the gospel? It's, it's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And yet what I want you to see is the gospel is also more than that. It's the entire story of the Bible. It's the entire narrative. And I believe that Jesus explains that to the disciples that walked along the road to Emmaus. Pick up with me in verse 13. We read that very day, the very day of the resurrection, two of them, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now imagine how sad verse 21 would have sounded. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things happened. But then they add this. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter his glory? And, the, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. 
And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. If you're taking notes here, this is point two, gospel narrative, the storyline of the gospel, the gospel narrative. Now here, as Jesus is walking with these two disciples, they're saying these facts about Jesus, but they're unable to recognize him. And then what does Jesus do that they may know who he is, that they may fully comprehend the message of the gospel and the God who is in control? He points them at verse 27 to all the scripture saying, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I wish that we got the entirety of what Jesus shared during this time. And yet we're told that, hey, beginning with Moses, beginning with what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis, into all the prophets, he, he taught throughout all the scriptures how everything was pointing to himself. As Jesus says in John 5.39 to some of the religious teachers, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, but it is they that point to me. And so what would Jesus have said? I think you could probably uh, contain it in uh, some of the words that we often use, right? Creation, fall, promises, redemption, mission, restoration. If you were to look at the entire storyline of the Bible, of the gospel, it's creation, it's fall, it's the promises that God makes throughout history and the prophets. It's the redemption, the coming of Christ. It's the mission God sends his people on, and it's the restoration of all things. I believe that Jesus probably said something like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. God created Adam and Eve to have a relationship with him. And a serpent came, and he tempted Adam and Eve. And they, they took a bite of the forbidden fruit that was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, sin entered into the world. Uh, their relationship with God was broken. They were separated from him. Their relationship with one another was broken. They no longer saw themselves as image bearers of the living God, but now sin infected their entirety. But God made a promise in that moment to the serpent that there would be one who would come one day, in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the serpent's head, and his heel would be bruised. The story continues. God lovingly covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve with animals that he has slain so that they could have, in a sense, their sins forgiven. Now, the people of God began to multiply, and God graciously chose a man named Abram, who would one day be Abraham. And he makes these promises to Abraham that you will be a great nation, that one day there will be one who comes from your line, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob, although he was a deceiver, although he wasn't that great of a guy, God pursued him still. Jacob wrestles with God, actually has his name changed to Israel, which literally means wrestles with God. Israel has 12 sons. They become 12 tribes. They grow into an entire nation. Because a famine exists, they went into Egypt uh, over time, they became slaves, and for 400 years were in Egypt, and yet God mercifully rose up a leader named Moses to take his people out from under the oppression of an evil Pharaoh, brings upon it 10 plagues, ultimately culminating in a Passover lamb being sacrificed and going through the Red Sea, experiencing the Exodus. And as God brings his people into the wilderness, he teaches them how to live with the Ten Commandments. He's taking them into the promised land. He is tabernacling with them 
a holy God in the presence of sinful people to display his grace and mercy. Uh, One day that tabernacle will become a temple. And over time, God brings his people into the promised land. There's this dark period called the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It's as if sin is the norm in the land. There's idolatry and spiritual adultery. And then there's this king, Saul. Uh, He's he's not great, but the people wanted a king. But then God brings another king named David. He's a king after God's own heart. He's not perfect by any means, but he wants to serve the Lord. As a young shepherd boy, he slayed a giant. Right? And, and then he's anointed. He ascends the throne. He, he says to God, I want to build you a temple where you're worshiped in Jerusalem. And God says, let me do something better. Through you, through the tribe of Judah, I want to build a dynasty. I, I, want, I want a king to come through your line that will have an everlasting reign for all eternity. Well, David dies. What happens? Solomon, his son, takes over. Then after Solomon dies, Rehoboam comes onto the scene. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He rules with an iron fist. This large nation of Israel is split in two into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because these nations had moments of waywardness and ultimately denied God in many ways. He brought upon judgment. In 722 BC, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. kingdom. In 587 BC, the southern kingdom of Israel was conquered the people were taken into exile. People like Daniel were taken into exile. But even during this time, God's speaking through Daniel, saying there is going to be one, the Ancient of Days, and you will know when he comes, and he will bring restoration to all of this. The prophet spoke, Isaiah 61 said, there is one who's coming, who is going to set the captives free, even in the midst of your captivity. After 70 years pass, uh, the, the Israelites are able to return back to Jerusalem. And what happens? Ezra rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the city. And then there are 400 years of silence. And the people of God wondered, where is the serpent crusher? Where is he who comes from the line of Abraham who will bless all families of the earth? Where is he who will rule upon the king of David? Where is he who will fulfill all the promises that were made? And in silence, the son of God was born in a way that was completely unlikely and unexpected. And the fulfiller had come saying, my kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe this good news, this gospel message that I have brought. I I am the true and better Passover lamb. I am the embodiment of the Exodus who leads my people into the promises that only I can fulfill. I am the one who has crushed the head of the serpent. I am the king who rules upon the throne of David. And all who come to me, who see that my death was on their behalf and that my resurrection is full of power to give them eternal life. They will have life in my name. And then Jesus tells these disciples that he has, I'm gonna give the Holy Spirit. And through you, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. You continue to read through the book of Acts and you see that the gospel goes forward. People can't stop talking about it. All the way to here and now, 2,000 years later, you and I are sitting in Cincinnati, Ohio, talking about the same gospel message that Jesus himself proclaimed. All the while, Jesus is saying, you know those prophets, prophets and what they prophesied? One day it's going to come to pass. John, who, who is going to write the book of Revelation, speaks of the day that I will return to judge the living and the dead. Those who don't have a relationship with me will experience uh, a, a terrible fate of conscience, conscious torment in a place called hell. And because of that, you need to share this gospel message. Those who have trusted in me and have declared me Lord over their life through repentance and faith, they will spend eternity with me. 
There will be a new heavens and a new earth. I will make all things new. I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more sickness, because God will be present for all eternity with his people. And I imagine that whenever Jesus got done with that, these disciples on the road to Emmaus were like, oh, it makes sense. We get it. We understand what the Exodus was pointing to. We understand what the Passover lamb was pointing to. We understand why the tabernacle and the temple was ultimately fulfilled in you, the word that became flesh to dwell among us. That's why their hearts burned as Christ made these things known. So how do you embody, how do you grow in this gospel message? You preach the gospel to yourself, right? You recognize that you never graduate from it, but that you continually need it. Saying, Lord, I acknowledge you're holy, I'm a sinner, that you are a savior and I need you. That I sin daily and that your forgiveness is anew every morning, that your mercies are new every morning, that I can trust in you and have life in your name. I can grow in you. You embody the gospel message. You grow deeper in the gospel by meditating on God's word, by having a plan to read it, to get into it, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. So you grow in the gospel message. Do you have a plan for getting into God's word? You grow in the gospel message experiencing restoration in you, through you, by gathering with God's people. Do you know that every time we gather, we rehearse the gospel together? Because the first song that we sing is always going to point our eyes to the Lord. The call to worship that is read, something like Hebrews 1, is always going to cause us to worship the Lord. But then that causes us to recognize our sinfulness and our need. So we sing a song like, His mercy is more. My sins they are many, His mercy is more. And then we, then we sing another song that's gonna point us to Christ, His redemption. He is my living hope. And then someone's going to get up and they're going to lead us through a time of scripture reading and prayer that's going to reflect on the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And you're going to have a sermon where we talk about the gospel and Christ's redemption. And then we're going to celebrate what Christ has done either through communion or through baptism. And then we're going to look at the mission that God has given us. We're going to sing a song that orients us toward being sent out into the world. We're going to give our tithes and offerings to serve others and to make God known. Uh, we have a time in which announcements are given because that is how we take action in what we believe in the Bible. And not only that, the final words of every single gathering are you are loved and you are sent. You are a missionary to the world until Christ returns. We see that the alphabet of the gospel from A to Z points to the Alpha and Omega who is our Lord. Let's pray.